Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This is Aaron from the show. First of all, thank you for listening. Once you finish listening to this episode, do us a solid. Go ahead and give us a rating and write a review of the show. This lets us know that we're doing a good job and helps other people find us. And speaking of other people, if you know someone who might enjoy the show, we would love it if you told them about it. We can be found at gttgp.com. There's tons of stuff on there. You can learn more about us. There's an episode guide. And of course, you can find our social media pages, where we love geeking out with our listeners. Now, let's get to the good part. But now we've rolled into the big boss battle, haven't we? Oh, I mean, H says that they've reached the final boss. We've we've reached the final boss, and and for those that don't know, when we say reach the final boss, uh, most video games, particularly the ones in the '80s and the '90s, uh, you had mini bosses. You know, people that characters you had to get past to move to the next stage, the next level, the next world. But you usually have somewhere in this system a final boss. That is the, the big guy that you've got to defeat. It's usually the strongest, the more powerful. It's, it's the one thing you've got to fight against that you've really got to use all of your skill because your amount of power and your amount of armor are not necessarily going to save you in this particular situation. You've got to you know be clever too. Well, I mean, it's also, in some ways, you learn a lot of how to fight by defeating the mini-bosses so that you can have all the skills you need to fight the final boss. Right. And in some ways, that's kind of the whole thing of the hunt. Yeah, yeah, precisely. So what, what, what are examples that you can think of as far as, like, boss battles are concerned? What do you think are some of the best boss battles out there? Because that's what we're going to compare this to. We read this book, we're thinking, how does this rate to boss battles in the games that I've played? Or, or in D&D, for, you, that, for example. I am a terrible person to ask about video game final bosses. So coincidentally, we asked our very awesome fans on our Facebook page who are the best final bosses that they've come across in their video game playing history. And there was a, some very good examples that I actually recognize, and there were some examples that I was like, I've never even heard of that game. Oh, God, yeah. I looked at this list and I was like, wow, huh. I've not played those. I've not even heard of some of these. But the one of that list that seems to come up at least a little bit more frequently than the rest is Mike Tyson and Mike Tyson's Knockout. Yeah, or Mike Tyson's Punch-Out. I'm sorry, Mike Tyson's Punch-Out. Have you, have you played that? Yeah, I have played that, and it is on my little NES Classic Mini as, mm-hmm. uh, I think it's called Mr. Dream's Punch-Out because Mike Tyson fell out of favor a long time ago. So we had three people tell us Mike Tyson was the hardest final boss they came across. And that was Paul L., Goth Machine, and JR. Mm-hmm. There may have been a few others, but those were, the, those were our three responses that mentioned Mike Tyson first off. 
Mike Tyson was a nasty final boss, is what Paul said. And Gawk Machine said, Mike Tyson was my first thought. <laughs> and JR was like, oh, and don't get me started on Mike Tyson from Punch-Out. Ugh. <laughs> and I don't think I ever got to Mike Tyson without using, like, a code or some cheat or something. But that was a boss that you could not make a single mistake. Mm-hmm, and I don't mm-hmm. think I've ever heard of anybody actually beating Mike Tyson. Huh. Yeah. Oh, as far as the game is concerned? Correct. Oh, oh no, I've I've known people that, that beat Mike oh, Tyson really? at the yeah. end. Yeah, yeah, the problem is is that if Mike Tyson lands a punch on you... You're done. It's pretty much, you go... Your body sort of wrinkles, falls to the side. You're mashing the buttons to get up. You, you Maybe you can get up once. If he hits you again, that's it, game over. Yeah, you're done. And But you had to duck at a certain time, and, and really this game was about looking for cues. Oh, yeah, yeah. So you could see, like, when one of the characters would start to wiggle back and forth, you knew a punch was coming. So maybe you would block, maybe you'd duck out of the way. Certain things you recognized worked when a cue happened. And there was sort of this area of effect that, you know, a punch could come, and you might hit duck, but if you didn't hit duck soon enough, the area of effect of that punch would still tag you, Yep. right? And it seemed that Mike Tyson had a large area of effect and did a lot of damage. So even if you knew his tell, you really had to nail the timing of that, that duck or getting out of the way just right. And using the right you, type do of get punch. Yes, yes, using the correct punch to, to say that, that uh, if there was a weakness, to exploit that weakness. That was how they got past it. You know, you play that game enough, and a lot of people love that game. I had a neighbor that had it, and he played it all the time. That's one of those games that we would we would play to see if we couldn't see how far we could get sort of beat each other. Yeah. Couldn't, couldn't play two-player, but you'd see how far each other could get, right? To see who was the better player. That, that is a game that I that my house had, played mm-hmm. in plenty, and I don't remember exactly how far we legitimately got in it, but it, it was tough. Like you said, all about timing and knowing what punches and what blo- what times you had to kind of block and all. It, it, was, it was hard. It was hard, but here's the thing, though. It was beatable, and the tells were not only visual, but they were audible. Mm-hmm. And I'll give you an example. In 2015, February of 2015, Jack Wedge released a video of himself beating the game 14 to 0 while blindfolded. Oh, wow. Right. So it's not only doable, but you can hear the tells and, and you can beat the game. It, it literally, it's, it's almost become sort of a when – we, when we hear Parzival talking about getting into the zone and recognizing patterns, right? That's what we're talking about here is knowing the game well enough to understand the patterns and to get into the flow of the game and then to be able to exploit the game's predictability to beat it. And then here's, here's a perfect example of that. I, I got a video of somebody doing it right now. I'm going to try to It's going to be a few minutes. It's a 48-minute thing. I like how this guy in this video is wearing the same kind of blindfold headband thing that it looks like the one that Daniel wears in Karate Kid. Oh, right on. That's cool. I see him playing Mike Tyson now. Oh, he's actually not blindfolded for Mike Tyson. Oh, no, that's just cheating. (laughs) So what's, what were some runners up as far as boss battles were concerned? All right, let's go back to the, the community. Uh, Jeff W said Medusa and kid Icarus was laughably easy. 
there was a very obvious spot on the screen where she can't get to you and you can't f and you can fire at will. As for a hard boss, the Joker in the NES Batman game is pretty hard. So was Dracula from Castlevania. Oh, I love Castlevania. I never got to Dracula. I don't think I cared to play it as long. But I, don't I, think I thought I did as far either. as the game was concerned, it was catchy. I, I liked the use of the, the sort of the chainmail whip that you had. Um, I remember game to play. playing that game a lot, but I don't remember getting the Dracula. But I remember it being it. I don't. You know, sometimes you can be in like a mood for a, like certain holidays and like Halloween. You get into a certain mood like that game. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, like put you in a place that was like perfect for like a Halloween type setting. Like it was horror movie ish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a good game it was to really play effective. to kind of get you in the mood. And I think, oh God, I got I think it is on my NES Classic. I have to try that, but it's a long and involved game, if I remember correctly. Right, right. So what else? Black Tiger. Black Tiger. The, the was Black mentioned. Dragon and Black Tiger was mentioned. Yep. So I thought that's cool. I never got to the end of that, so I've never seen that final yep. battle. That was posed by Scott M. Right. He said, "I could always make it all the way through the game, then die quickly and horribly at the final dragon." And that's so difficult at a game where you've spent like 30 or 40 minutes trying to get that far. And then, you know, that there's that buildup that there is no save. There is no local save point that you can come from. This is it. You know, you've only got so many lives and uh, you've made it to the final boss. And that's, you know, you're just at the precipice of winning the entire thing, which is always so satisfying. And then to be defeated by that last boss yeah. is, uh, is uh, sucks. It sucks. But other games that I'd never heard of before that some of our, our audience mentioned. So Daniel S. said Helga from Revolution X. She at first seems easy, just a normal shooting. But then when she lands on the New Order Nation throne, she morphs into Mondor. It was even more difficult to handle, but victory was even more sweet when you finished taking him out. I've never heard of Revolution X. Have you? Hold, hold on a minute. Did we just go, did it change genders? Helga to Mondor, apparently. Yeah, like like Mondor, to, like Helga turns into, uh, you know, goes male. Well, Call me crazy. Is that not just sexist? Like, eh. Yeah, whatever. Seems easy because it's a girl, but then it, it gets on the throne, turns into a guy, and is a pain in the well, ass. Well, you never know. Helga could just be a dude. Oh, okay. I don't know. See, I've not played the game. So, you know, grossly out of touch there. Hunter N. said the best final boss was the Panther King at the end of Conquer's Bad Fur Day from the Nintendo 64 and called it a throwback to the movie Aliens. Not familiar okay, with that game. Interesting. Also mentioned by Hunter was Capra Demon, Dark Souls, not the remastered, was the hardest boss. And broken many a controllers over that fight. I can understand that because that was like what we were talking about with Mike Tyson's punch out. It was where you kind of have, when you, were when you got hit and you were trying to stand back up you were just smashing that controller and i could see between the frustration of losing towards the end or just trying to tap that button enough times that you would probably hurt a controller or two i don't think he's saying like i just wore the shit out of the controller because you invest a lot of times in these games and that's something that we don't and i think these days games just don't have there isn't the appreciation for the amount of time you invest into a single sitting for a video game. Oh, because there was no saving back then? There was no saving. You got a set number of lives, and that was it. So you get to that place where you've invested an hour, two hours into playing a single game, a single sitting. And again, 
you're on the edge of having completed that boss, the frustration of dying and game over coming up is mind maddening. Yeah. It is it is a, a soul crushing defeat because all that time and effort was invested into getting to that place only to be bested. And then you just it just it it's what drew you back because the pleasure of beating the boss is also gargantuous. It was a huge high versus a, a huge, frustrating moral defeat. And I think that's what broke the most number of controllers gotcha. because you would throw that controller onto the ground. You might fucking throw that controller at the wall. Just fucking hate this game. Just toss it at the freaking television, right? Oh, yeah. If you didn't break a screen, you were destroying a controller. But you would always come back because you knew you could get to that place. And somewhere in your head, you were like, ah, this is what I did wrong. And if I just do it again, I'll be able to beat them. So it was it was addictive. It was almost as if the pain of playing the game was addictive. Mm-hmm. We don't have that in games anymore. We don't have that in our games anymore. Back when you'd get frustrated and your games were addictive and you'd spend five hours playing a game. But when you say that gameplay has gotten much longer. No. Really? I, no. Like, not, it, no. Uh, I don't know. I, I'm not the expert on it, but it seems like a lot of these games take lots and lots of time. To get but the games end quicker, like it's it's around ends, mm-hmm. and you can stop at any time. But you just you know you're having fun. You you play for fifteen minutes, the round ends. You're like, eh, I can afford another fifteen. I might play for three hours, like Battlefield or some other EA game or some other you know Atari, you know some other modern game. I might play for an hour, two hours, three hours. I can end it at any time, pick back up where I ended it. Usually, more often than not. Or I can just start another round. And, you know, I don't have a lot of emotional investment in the path that the game provides because the path itself is actually rather shallow. And there's no risk of having to go to the very beginning if I stop playing. All right. With these games, once you start, if, you, if you're on a roll, you don't fucking stop. Fair enough. So anyway, moving forward, we'll try to get through this list and then I'll actually mention some of the ones that I actually remember getting to at some point. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Justin R. says, I vaguely remember that many, to be honest. Ocarina of Time, Knights of the Old Republic, and some Elder Scrolls Online, if you count the final boss in a dungeon. Those have given me the most joy beginning to end. Uh, all of those had save points. And I'm not saying that, that the final boss is necessarily bad. I just don't feel like there is as much um, investment, sure. momentary investment, because all of those had save points. Sorry, Justin. I'm not. I'm not shitting on your game experience or the the stuff that you loved. I I just don't think you would end up throwing your your controller at the ground at the fact of having lost to anyone in any one of those games. Moving forward, Jr. Mm. said, "Jockio from Ninja Gaiden from for the NES was rough because every time you died, you had to completely restart the super hard last level. So many hours were spent on that game. LOL." I remember beating Legends of Zelda when I was really young without any cheats. That took forever. Mm-hmm. Back in the old days of Nintendo Power magazine, where if you wanted a game tip, you had to mail a letter to them. I know I still have their replies laying around somewhere. Ha ha. I can't believe I can't believe you actually spoke in the ha ha. Ha ha. But the I remember I remember <laughs> Nintendo Power and using I remember that magazine had the map of Legends of Zelda so you could actually know where the fuck you were going. And that I remember actually, I think we beat that one without cheats. In one sitting? Probably not one sitting. Yeah. 
But I remember Legend of Zelda. I think I gotta try playing that on on my classic. I remember the original Legend of Zelda because my neighbor had it. See, I had the Sega Entertainment System, mm-hmm. and my neighbors had the Nintendo. Sega always felt like it had better graphics. It just it didn't it didn't feel like it. It fucking did. Well, yeah. Well, it, it was sixteen bit versus eight, right? Well, no. I mean, eventually it was sixteen bit. But even when we were talking about the original Entertainment Center, it, it it just seemed to have more effort into the development of the games. Okay. But the Nintendo games became more popular, so it's it's kind of a toss up there, right? So, so the, the the last boss that somebody offered up to us as a tough final boss, or at least a good final boss, was Michael C, who said, "In the shadows of the Empire, both Boba Fett and IG eighty eight are great bosses." I don't remember. I didn't play the Me game, neither. so that's awesome. So as far as final bosses that I remember getting to, either legitimately or not, mm-hmm. I would say that I'm pretty sure over the course of a long time, eventually got to Mother Brain in the original Metroid. More right. often using the cheat code where you could just go right to Mother Brain. That's not fair. It's not fair, but I will say <laughs> that as far as difficulty not very difficult to actually beat Mother Brain. Okay, alright, but if you sat and went all the way from beginning to end to get to Mother Brain, I think there's something to be said about the amount of wear and tear on your brain. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Playing a game for hours and then getting to Mother Brain with a tired brain. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then plus on top of that, yeah, of course it's going to come out easier because after five or six games you learn the pattern... And then you go, oh, well, oh, that is easy. I'll just do that thing. And then you kill Mother Brain. But if you had to spend two hours playing before you even got to Mother Brain, aside from the fact that you may not have survived to get to Mother Brain, there would be far fewer chances to get to her, far fewer chances to recognize a pattern to defeat her. Or defeat him. I mean, I don't know. It's a brain. So genderless, I suppose. Mother. It. And it would be perceivably more difficult because you would have less practice against it. The benefit of Metroid was that you had codes to resume the game where you were, but you'd start off with no energy. And I forget how they did spawn points. Did you always spawn at the same point? I don't remember. I don't think you... I think you you spawned at the... The original Metroid, I didn't think, had spawn points. It didn't really... Well, it... I thought you just started. There were certain places that I think were checkpoints... And you didn't necessarily start at the same start point, I think. So when we say start, do we mean like after a new game, or do we mean like when you die? Both. So like if you've got three lives and you die, you go to that checkpoint, and then you move forward from the checkpoint, but you don't have to go to the very beginning of the game. Yeah, I mean, really it's just a matter of like where in the map you started. Right. It's been a little bit too long since I played, but I'm, I thought that if you use the Justin Bailey code, you started off kind of at a different point in the map where if you just started off a, a fresh game. Right, and for those who, who use cheat codes, y'all suck. Hey. Uh, and I, yeah, well, hey. You know what? It, every time I've used a cheat code where I thought, ha-ha, I've got a cheat code, the game all of a sudden became muted. I lost immediate interest. I f- Did you feel dirty? No, I just, it, it just felt like, I don't know, I just... um. It became either too easy or I just lost interest because it no longer felt like I was playing the game. It wasn't a game anymore to me. Fair like it just it just felt too shallow. 
and I don't, I don't even mean it from like a moral or an ethical perspective. I'm just mean like it would be kind of like, oh, look, I've got unlimited lives. It, it, it removed the competitive edge, right? It removed the feeling of danger that also made playing the game enjoyable for me. So, you, so you're, you're much more of a video game purist where you don't want you, – you, you want it to be a measure of your ability as opposed to getting Yeah, shortcuts. but I don't mean – I get it. I understand. <laughs> I understand. Fine. Be the, no, it's not like an elitist, elitist position. It's really a position of personally, I didn't derive any enjoyment from the cheat codes because it removed an element of the game that gave me enjoyment, gave me a high. Uh, to any game should. Ooh. Right? Sure. So this is the point in the chapter where they realize they're going to have a bit of a tough time beating this final boss. Just a bit. So Parzival offers to be the sacrificial lamb to distract Mm -hmm. Sorrento. And Shodo's like, sounds like a plan, and goes to do that himself. Which has such a sense of honor in that character of Shoto, which is really great. I'm not sure that revenge counts as honor, but I don't care how you put it. I do like the fact that Shoto, Shoto has a, a deeper goal. And he said earlier on in the book, I no longer care about getting the egg. Yeah, it's no longer about the egg for him. It's about right. revenge. While I get that that's not necessarily like the, an honorable motive, but the self-sacrifice, the he's sacrificing himself for the, the better of the whole. And... Yeah, so he's he's like, don't worry, I'm right behind you, I'm coming, and he's he's not, he's not. Yeah, he's he's going to end up fighting, and the gist is that his his goals, his drive is in a slightly different direction now. It's in a place of doing the most harm to the person who did harm to him in the real world, right? Physically and emotionally, yeah. and taking out that revenge, you know, just satisfying that desire. And we talk about motivations in a game where some people might be motivated to get to the end of the game regardless of what cheat codes they use because they want to experience the whole game. For me, that takes away the purpose of the game. We're talking about two different drives. I've rarely ever gotten to a boss battle. I've rarely cared to get to a boss battle, and that's where my drive is different than someone else's. So my drive has always been in just getting as far as I could and possibly getting a little farther. For me, that's a great goal. The boss... Is, is icing on the cake if I get there. Other people have a much longer game, metaphorically speaking. They're playing the long game, which is getting to the boss, right? And whatever it takes to get there. So I think that's the difference here is that you have two groups of peeps who have different drives in the game. And for Shoto, it is to defeat Sorrento or to do as much damage as he can. All good stuff. All good stuff. So H. Artemis and Parzival reach the castle gate and... H and Artemis do these rather slick moves to get out of their mechs. They eject. The mechs get smaller. They snatch it out of the air and land, which is pretty cool. And then they're trying to get Shoto to get his ass to the gate. And he does that whole, you know, go on without me. Right. I owe this son of a bitch some payback. And he does some considerable damage to Sorrento. He uses his swords and nearly severs his right arm from the elbow. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that the close-up attack with the sword does more damage than some of the more powerful blasts, well, some of the blasts that should be more powerful, from the other robots. In that, in that effect, Shoto is triumphant in sort of disabling a part of this Mechagodzilla, 
which is surprising given the the size comparison between the two. Yeah, and within moments, Mechagodzilla's eyes glow blue and fires towards Shoto. And despite Parzival's warning, Radiant explodes and Shoto's avatar is dead and no longer on the scoreboard. Yeah. Thus ends the Japanese duo on the scoreboard. Yeah. Well, and you know what, though? That's the part of the story where, where in the moment you're like, okay, this is another real battle. Like, this is going to have effects. Not everyone's going to walk away, right? This is where it kind of, quote-unquote, gets real. Because one of the characters that, that, is kind of, that you've gone through the book with, that you're attached to, that's in the fight, doesn't survive. And I think in any moment where you have epicness, you have to kill one or two or more of your characters to show that, that there is vulnerability. You know, yeah, it ha- something has to make it real and no longer for no longer a, a game, so to speak. It shows what's at stake. Yeah, and when we talk about epic movies, you know, characters that are lost, I, I kind of go back to Rogue One. All of the main characters from Rogue One die. Oh shit! Uh, spoilers. <laughs> well, fuck it. If you haven't seen it now, you're at a loss. But all the main characters die, and that's that's the point. Like you. You knew that was going to happen because of another movie that says that they did. But these are the lives up to the point where they die for this main battle. And, you know, when the first one loses his life, you're like, oh, fuck. This is where it's going to begin. This is, this is where they are no longer sort of invincible because of how long they have survived in the story thus far. You realize they're just as vulnerable as everyone else in the battle. Mm-hmm. So do you think Shoto turned back for payback? expecting to die an honorable death or not? I think in a situation like that, you're not thinking about whether or not you're going to die. Your focus is purely on doing the most amount of damage, going as far as you can, you know, to drive through the object, the obstacle. You're not thinking that the obstacle will stop you. You're not thinking about how far you'll go before you are stopped. You're merely focused on driving through it. Because if you stop to think for any moment that you could die or when you'll die, it's self-defeating. So I, I don't think in this kind of moment. This made me think about the, the kamikazes from World War II. Okay. And so those were the Japanese planes loaded with explosive that made suicidal flights to take out enemy target. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering if this was Shoto being a kamikaze and that this was about the, you know, the battle as a whole and not necessarily about himself and that it was for the greater good. So almost like he, I, I guess I'm just not sure whether or not he expected to die, but since he w- had a, a moment of success, he decided that he would go back to the gate and like, oh, that's like a bonus right? that he didn't die. Uh, I, I am not sure that w- when I read this, I did not immediately connect this to Kamikaze. Like, oh, there goes, you know, that, that, that Japanese character becomes the character that ends up sacrificing himself because they have honor and that's what they do. It seems like a poor characterization or a, a poor stereotype. And I'm not saying you're stereotyping him in this necessarily. I'm just saying that seems to be a, a stereotype that sort of bubbles up occasionally. Like that's, that is how a character from this place would, would do that thing or handle that thing. So it didn't come across to me as, oh, he's being a kamikaze pilot. I really just thought of it as somebody who was sharply focused, like the edge of a sword, in accomplishing his one goal, which is to inflict as much damage against the guy that hurt him. 
So he, he was more concerned with payback as opposed to anything else. That's how I read it. Uh, I think you could kind of elevate to that level and make the comparison that you did. And I'm, I'm, I don't think that's unfair. I don't think that's wrong per se. It's just not how I read into it. Because keep in mind, Parzival was going to do the same thing. I think Parzival was doing it more along the lines of, I'll try and stall him while you guys get in. And then maybe I'll break away and come in at the last minute, or maybe I won't, but I'm going to do the best I can to, to open the gates for you guys to handle it. And then Shoto steps in, who has greater motivation to do that. And then says, no, 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 you go along, I'm right behind you guys. And they're like, okay. On a similar angle, do you think Parzival would have preferred, I guess preferred is not the right word. Do you think Parzival really just wanted everybody else to get to the gate, and he was less concerned about his ability of getting to the gate? Um... Almost like he didn't want that responsibility. I think that as an author, if you're trying to write in that your character has good character, not to be too redundant, that you're going to have that character thinking of others before themselves in, in dangerous and desperate situations. Whereas most people are going to think of themselves and they're going to use fight or flight as a means of preserving themselves without the distraction and without the distraction of giving regard to anyone else. Uh, but here you have a person who who is tr who's trying to be exemplified as somebody with still great character during duress. And as such, he's thinking of the other people. He's thinking of his other teammates at this point. Which is what he's been doing for a few chapters now, because he's put himself on the line to go into IOI headquarters and figure out a way to break down the shield. Well, he's given, you know, in the book, he's given great consideration to killing himself. He put himself in a position where he was in the den of the lions, where he could have been captured and killed. He is at the point where consideration for his own life and his own interests have taken a backseat to a greater goal. He's moved. Yeah, it's kind of like, remember, remember the last time we spoke about this and we, we kind of joked like, Parzival saying, you know, are you guys going to do anything to get to the egg? <laughs> yeah. It's like, I'm doing all the work here. I'm doing the heavy lifting. Come on, give me a hand. Yeah. So, you know, it, I think from a writing perspective, you want Parzival to still look like the hero because Parzival is the, is, is the hero in the story, one of them at least. But at least the main character as it's being told through the eyes of Parzival. It, it doesn't surprise me. He's like, I've got this. But then if Shoto steps in and says, no, 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 I've got this. If Shoto doesn't have any greater reason for sacrificing himself for the greater good of everyone else, then Parzival backing down is kind of like, oh, thank God. <laughs> yeah, right. I didn't really want to. I didn't really want to have to do that. So, dude, I totally appreciate you like sacrificing yourself. Thanks. You know, it, you know, Shoto has to have a reason for butting in to that position. And he butts in. Very successfully. He fucking breaks his blades out and shoves it right into the butt. Absolutely. So, enough about Shoto. Fuck Shoto. Yeah. No. No, I'm sorry. Right. Poor Shoto. Poor Shoto. His shit gets ripped Wang. apart. So, Parzival, as Leopardon, kind of takes a direct hit from Sorrento. You fucking make it sound like you accidentally dinged your dad's car. Well, you know, yeah, yeah, I just kind of, he just sort of got hit. We got I to, thought I was hitting hit. the brake. I hit the gas. Yes. <laughs> Which cut him in half. In half. And it somehow but, had the presence of mind to eject. Now, I should, we should say Bye -bye, this, though, is that Leopardon doesn't explode because Leopardon is huge. Like, when, when that, that 
fucking maw of a mouth and the lightning comes out and it just cuts this deep scar across the landscape and just vaporizes tanks and avatars. When he hits Leopardon, Leopardon's pretty fucking big, so it severs him, doesn't just blow him up. Yeah, well, and, and it makes it seems to make the point that the only reason why the damage was limited to just that mm-hmm. was that the beam cut off early because he ran uh, out of... So that could be why. Okay. Well, okay, yeah. He just, T-Tech kind of took, like, the, the last moment, the, the, the sloppy seconds of the beam, if you will, you know, hit him, and that was enough to basically blow a midsection in half, sink yeah. his ship. So Parzival loses his robot. It's just a flesh wound. Yeah. <laughs> and then nearly escapes being crushed by Sorrento mm-hmm. with uh, props to his jet boots. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Really convenient to have those. And he has this moment where he could either get right to the gate and take care of Biz, mm-hmm. or he decides, he kind of pulls a bit of a Shoto here and says, you know what? Nah, we're going we're gonna to F his shit up. He struggles for a minute. He, he could run in. He would be protected. He would. To an extent, because then, you know, he could, you know, Sorrento could get out of his Mechagodzilla and, and come and follow him in, but he, he would be protected. So he's in that moment where he, he could make a choice. He could run in and be protected, or he could just finish this shit. Yeah, so he decides that he's going to take out his beta capsule. The part in the book goes like this. Sorrento had tried to kill me, and in the process, he had murdered my aunt, along with several of my neighbors, including Sweetos. All the cats. All the fucking cats. Including sweet old Mrs. Gilmore, who had never hurt a soul. He had also had Daito killed, and even though I'd never met him, Daito had been my friend. And now Sorrento had just killed Shoto's avatar, robbing him of his chance to enter the third gate. Sorrento didn't deserve his power or his position. What he deserved, I decided in that moment, was public humiliation and defeat. He deserved to have his ass kicked while the whole Mm -hmm. world watched. We've, we've got a problem here. Oh, no. And, and this is a degree of pride. Now, don't get me wrong. This makes for great writing. But if he had died, if he could not defeat Mechagodzilla, if there would have only been two people to open the gate that he knows requires three. It was a stupid thing to do, especially considering once you get into the castle, mm-hmm. there, you're not going to have Mechagodzilla as a threat anymore. So you might have you might have Sorrento as a you might have, because... you might have Sorrento, but even still, Sorrento can just switch to another avatar after his av- after Mechagodzilla, you know, is no longer a problem. Like if if Sorrento's avatar gets killed, he can still be in the game because he can just switch to another avatar. So at the end right. of the day, this battle is really for show. This is pride, yes. and uh, and and this was a stupid move in my part. Don't get me wrong; makes for great writing. But it is un it is not rationable. It is kind of reasonable. I understand it emotionally. That said, he he does have an ace in his pocket. Yes. And this is probably my favorite part of the book, is this little battle here. It's just awesome. He holds the beta capsule up over his head, hits the button, and then you have a blinding flash of light, and then he turns in to the Red and silver skinned humanoid alien with a glowing with glowing egg shaped eyes and the weird finned head. And I kinda wonder if he had the zipper on the back like they did in the TV series. <laughs> but he was now Ultraman for a whopping three minutes. 
And I will say that over the course of this battle between him and Mechagodzilla, I don't think it took a whole three minutes. It feels less. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, it, it had to have. It doesn't run out of time before well, no, he No, but he says him. that he had like three seconds left, I think. 15 uh, seconds okay. left. He, he had 15 seconds left by the time it was all done, but we'll get there. Okay. So instead of looking down at Parzival as, an, as Avatar Parzival, Sorrento is now looking face-to-face with Ultraman. And I love it, those movie moments where, where you're scanning from the bottom to the top of something. And, and you know what they're doing is they're taking in your size and calculating size. Uh, <clears throat> and I've seen that in, in like a few movies where all of a sudden something is huge. And at the, the bottom of it is presented to you at first. And it seems that you're tracking up its legs. And it just feels like your ability to get the scope of what's in front of you never ends. Because your head just kind of, I don't, there have been some Godzilla movies that are kind of like that. Uh, but, you know, just. Taking in the full scope requires you to literally move your body and your head to take in the size. And that's where Sorrento is. He's looking down, and then boom, now there is this, you know, giant freaking... It's not really a robot, is it? Because it's no, really him it's, it's in the It's a humanoid suit. alien. Yeah. And, uh, and he's taking in the size, and it's as big as he is. They're eye to eye. Yep. And what was interesting about their battle was, unlike Ultraman... From the series, Parzival goes right to the the ace up his sleeve. Yep. He goes to the specium ray. Oh yeah, he crosses his arms. Let's and, not fuck around. Yeah, it's like there is no, it is not a fuck around moment. And then he jumps a half a kilometer in the air and lands on Mechagodzilla, kind of hurting him badly. And then he right. does the ultra slice and then cuts him in half as if it were tofu. So yeah, the interesting I, thing here is that he jumps up half a kilometer, which if my memory serves as to how big he is, that means like 10 times his height. Right. Okay. So that's a, that's a, that's pretty, pretty big. That's a, yeah. It's a big yeah, jump. Yeah. That's going to, that's going to come down with some power. That's going to leave a mark. Oh, ouch. And then, so he lands on him, which basically, which does a, a, a whopping amount of damage to Mechagodzilla. Cuts him in half, and then Sorrento ejects. So I think that's the the head of Mechagodzilla kind of flies right. off. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it's along the ground, and then gets blasted away with one final shot of the specium ray. Mm-hmm. And Sorrento is dead. Right, right. I mean, and the nice thing about this is that, like a lot of these, a lot, of, a lot of the the shows we talked, we touched on this earlier. They they go to the final blow way too fucking late in the fight mm. here you, you could ask yourself well golly why doesn't he start the fight with ultraman and the answer is that you've only got three minutes so if you're gonna bring out your most dangerous weapon w- let everybody wear down the main bad guy first right then pull out your main weapon because it is limited you know it's limited you've got a limited amount of time to bear the the most powerful of your weapons and that in, in this situation is what Parzival's done i don't know if it's necessarily intentional per se but everyone has bore their weapons down, and they have not yet brought down Mechagodzilla, although damaged. Although although damaged, critically damaged, like the arm, for example, and some of the armor. And now he can pull it out and use his true ace, which is Ultraman. Yeah. And in three minutes, there is a high confidence that he could take out Mechagodzilla with 
pretty much ease as as it's as is described here, which may not have been the case. Right. Well, that's true. Might not have been the case, but it, it does show that with his blast, like the eyes started to glow. He did the blast and then the eyes went dim. Like he disabled that part of him that could fight. His main weapon was disabled. So it, this is a situation where we escape that whole trope of bringing out the most powerful thing to kill the monster at the end, you know, just for the sake of the glory of the battle and that you bring out your best sh- shit last. And apparently even with that most powerful weapon, he still uses two minutes and 45 seconds of his three minutes to right. do all this. Yeah. It, it, so it's it makes sense. It is actually reasonable in this story that he brings out Ultraman when he does, and then he brings out the power, the full bear of those weapons when he does. And on top of that, Ultraman is allowed to be more powerful. Aside from the fact that he's only got three minutes to use his weapons, he was not a part of the lineup of robots that were offered from Black Tiger. And those robots were balanced, or seemed to be balanced in some way. This is not only not a part of that lineup, but is allowed to be unbalanced because it is a wholly different robot. And it is an example of a non-Chekhov's gun because it was the artifact that Parzival, Shoto, and Daito won by defeating the Ultraman challenge. And then Daito left the beta capsule to Parzival in his Mm -hmm. avatar will. Right. So we kind of knew it was going to have to come up at some point. And here it is at the 11th hour there to save the day. So to speak. Yeah, they could have used this as just a means of expressing friendship. The first time they get the Betel capsule, he he extends sort of the olive branch of friendship to Daito and Shoto by saying, you guys keep it. Because there was sort of that argument. There was that rough spot where you've got three people going to do this effort, but only one reward at the end. So he's like, you know, you guys have it. And then when Daito ends up getting killed, he refuses to take the Beta capsule, but Shoto insists. He says, you should have it. He would want you to have it. And quite frankly, it's too painful for me to have it. Yeah. I don't fucking want this shit, which is kind of like, you know what? Beta capsule? I'm fucking taking it. Yeah. No shit, right? Uh, yeah, exactly. It's, oh, thanks. Put it in my pocket. But, you know, it could have just been used as a, as a means of solidifying friendship between the divide that was between him and these other two partners in the search for the same thing in this competition. And it could have been left at that. But nope, we've got this ultimate weapon on his hip that he whips out in the last three minutes of the battle, and it's the last three minutes because, well, you know, you know, that's the last part of this battle that anyone's going to really care about. And then ends up defeating him, ends up killing Sorrento, and then, boom, you know, goes away, and he ends up going to the gate where H and Artemis are waiting for him. A little pissed pretty, off. Pretty fucking <laughs> pissed off, yeah. I thought this dialogue had some very interesting aspects to it. For mm-hmm. one, H is the first one to express his pissed offness at Parzival, which I would have expected to have been an Artemis thing to do. Which she does. Yeah, she's pissed off too. She calls him a selfish asshole. Uh-huh, which he is. But what, uh, what I thought was interesting about what she said was, what if you'd gotten yourself killed too? So my question to you is, how pissed do you think she is at Shoto? I think that if... Parzival had said, I got this, I'll stall him, you go. And Shoto was like, yep, I'm on it. And then he went with the other three. That if Parzival was killed, yeah, the other three might be disappointed, but they would have at least had three keys. 
Yeah. They would have been able to open the door, right? They would have been able to figure it out. But they knew that it would take three. They had a guess that it would probably take three. And Parzival knew it. They knew it. Shoto is down. And he went off when he could have been safely in the castle. He went off to kill Sorrento. And in that sense, it's not only it's selfish, it's selfish in the sense that he's thinking of himself and he's thinking about, you know, somebody deserving basically to be embarrassed. That's all because he's going to come back. They can't come back. Sorrento can come back. All this is is embarrassment and defeat. Yeah. And despite the fact that he becomes a nearly invincible, as far as we know, Mm -hmm. Ultraman, it's still stupid because something could have gone wrong. And for all we know... Mechagodzilla could have been more powerful than Ultraman. We, we just don't know. Well, uh, or we get to the end of three minutes, Mechagodzilla is still standing, and he lands in a place where he's vulnerable and can be stomped out or killed or, you know, basically yeah. burned up by Mechagodzilla. He, he could have be, been in a worse position to escape than he was previously. So we are all in agreement. This is a dick move. Bit of a dick move. Yeah. And... He is. He gets his ass handed to him a little bit by his friends, and then they take out their keys. Nothing happens. But then Parzival has this idea, and then says three is a magic number. And lo and behold, two extra keyholes appear. And this is the point where I started to think about what other instances in pop culture, movies, television, whatever, where you had multiple keys that needed to either be turned or inserted at the same time. And I came up with two examples off the top of my head where that was the case. Okay. So I thought of war games. Okay. So what about war games exactly? There was that beginning scene where there was that, where they, they didn't know if it was a test or not, I think. About- yeah. They're, they're in the missile silo. You got the two guys, and this is, this is still the case. You got the two guys down below. They get the message to launch. They break out the keys. You know, they, they crack open the procedure. They break out the keys, and one of the two decides not to participate in the what, what could potentially be the end of the world. And as a result, the other one pulls out his gun and tells him, you need to turn that key with me because there are two different parts of the room and they both have to turn the key at the same time. No one person is allowed to have control over launching the rocket or launching the missile. Right. On my mark, rotate launch keys to launch. Roger, ready to go launch. 14. 13. 13. 12, 12 11, 11, 11, 11, 11, 11, 11, 11, 11, 11, 11, 11, 11, 11, 11, 11, 11, 11, 11, 11, 11, 11, 11, 11, 11, 11, 11, 11, 11, 11, 11, 11, 11, 11, 11, 11, 11, 11, 11, 11, 11, 11, 11, 11, 11, 11, 11, 11, 11, 11, 11, 11, 11, 11, 11, 11, the genesis of the whole movie. So right. that was the right. first example I thought of. And the other example I thought of was Superman three. I, okay. I'm at a loss. Superman three is the one where you've got Richard Pryor and he develops the supercomputer. Where were the three keys? It's not three keys. It was two keys. Same thing as this one, okay. uh, the same as war games, but it was to take control of that satellite. He boozes up. I guess it's Brad to get into that place where you can control the satellite okay and he puts the he puts one key and he puts the other in and then he sees the thing that says both keys at the same time 
Oh, and, oh right, and then, right. And, and like then he rigs knocked out. Yeah, he, he rigs up the passed out dude. And Yeah, then, he like puts like twine around his hand and yeah, puts his hand exactly. in the key. And then he pulls on the twine while turning the key at the same time. Yeah, okay, I can't remember that part. It's been uh, a while. It, it wasn't turning it, it was just like inserting it. It was kind of like inserting like a comb into a slot. Oh, okay. Okay. It, it has been a while, but yeah, I think I remember that part. Thanks for reminding me. So those were two examples that I thought of where you had multiple keys that have to be turned or inserted at the same time. Do you have any that you can think of? Yeah, absolutely. The fifth element. Now, we're not talking about keys, but we are talking about the elemental stones and that those stones have to be on at the same time in order for spirit to be activated and to kill the nothing that uh, ends up wiping out Narnia. Hobby? Come on, man. I have no fire. I have no matches. I see you got any matches. I have no matches. I saw smoke. And if I knew, I mean, father, you smoke. We need some matches. Matches. We need some fire. We're going to die. So, but, but the thing is, so like one person could have activated all three of those in succession. But the, I'm talking about examples where keys that have to either be turned or inserted at the same time and therefore can't be done by a single person. Yeah, I suppose. When we get to that place where where you have to have that coordination. You're right. I, I I can't think of anything off the top of my head. I'm sure there is some, but I just sure I can't think is. of anywhere where it requires different people getting to the same place to, to play their role to, to conquer that one thing. So then I'm going to ask all of our listeners out there who are following us on Facebook and Twitter and wherever else we are social that we want to hear what examples we missed. So please comment or whatever on our social media to tell us what we're missing. Mm. So they get the keys in and uh, they go to turn the keys and clockwise, clockwise, also known as Deosil in, in the direction of the sun. Ah, and uh, they turn it and uh, the gate opens and there's a flash of blue light opening Ooh. into a spinning whirlpool of stars. That's nice. Yeah. And, and it's a big fucking tease. Yeah, 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 because then everyone dies. Oh, uh, wah, wah. There's a, a, an ear-splitting boom like the universe is being cracked in half, and everyone dies. They all die. End of game. Game over would come up. Could you imagine that? Can you imagine that? Oh, this is, this is the part we're talking about, destroying your fucking remotes, right? Yeah. Destroying your, your, your game. You've gotten to that place where you're just about to end it. And then game over. And fucking throw your gears off. I mean, I think I would just tear up a fucking haptic rig. It's especially irritating because they take five or ten seconds to marvel at the whirlpool of stars. Like, here we go. It's like, just fucking walk in. Yeah. What are you yeah. waiting for? <laughs> what are you waiting for, huh? What are you waiting for? I, it's comfort. I mean, they, they've, they've conquered pretty much everyone. They've... They've done everything they could possibly do. You know, they've they've killed nearly everyone. You know, the the hordes of gunters are taking care of IOI's employees one at a time. Obviously, not enough. Uh, you you've got a moment. You've got that moment that you're just maybe awestruck, gobsmacked, and then before you go in, you wasted a few moments, and then end of game. Game over. So here we have probably the. Greatest cliffhanger of the book. I, this this chapter has everything. It's got a huge, huge cliffhanger. 
If you stopped at this point and went, eh, I'm going to go to bed now, or or I'm going to get out of my car and go to work. No, 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 no. You did not stop at the end of this chapter Hell no, when you, you read this book, when you listened to this book. No, you fucking did not. And if you did, fuck you. <laughs> well, if you did, then you're a better person than I. You have more fortitude, maybe. Yeah, I mean, it's it's got a gargantuous cliffhanger. Everyone dies. You've got robot battles, explosions. You know, you've got triumph over the bad guy, right? You've got the trope of bringing down the shield and let loose the the fucking dogs of war. Everything that you love about action in a movie is here. It's piled into like a handful of pages. And then at the end of it is, and then we all died. Culminates to just everybody fucking dropping over dead. And you're like, no. If you didn't. You either continued or you threw the book across the fucking room. Yeah. Another example of a not Chekhov's gun, because we heard about the Cataclyst way back. Yeah. And yes. It has... And you probably, you probably forgot about it, like I had. So, yeah, this was an awesome chapter. Yep. Yep. Everything was brought to bear on this chapter. All the big weapons, everything. This chapter stuck with me so much that I recreated the battle between Mechagodzilla and Ultraman. Did you dress up with your wife and play Naughty Time? No. But as Did I mentioned before in, previous, uh, in a previous episode, uh-huh. I have a Mechagodzilla action figure and an Ultraman uh-huh. action figure at my desk at work. Okay. I'm just saying, no one, no one listening to this would blame you if you did a little cosplay in your private time. Uh, I can't say that I've ever done that. (sighs) Anyhow, moving on. So that's the chapter. It just ends. It's just like that. That's how how we're going to end this. Everyone's dead. They're dead, Dave. They're all dead, Dave. There was one kind of tinfoil hat thing that I found in this chapter. Because they're really, I mean, maybe I'm missing something, but there wasn't much to kind of glean any tinfoil hat stuff from. Yeah, this is pretty straightforward. Like, referentially speaking, I think the only real reference we've got here that we haven't already hit before is Red Dawn, which means I get to watch a movie that is going to be for awesome. all intents and purposes, kind of sucks. Oh, right. Kind of awesome. It's right. awesome. Okay. So, oh, all right. So the one thing that I kind of noticed was, and this is kind of a, a bit of a throwback to the previous chapter where we talked about three being a magic number. Mm-hmm. There are three significant flashes of light in this chapter. Okay. Go on. So first we have the blinding light of the antimatter friction bomb, which is what brings Uh down the shield. Right. We have the beta capsule. Okay. Which has a bright flashing light. Right. And then finally the third gate opening. Flash of light crack like the universe splitting in half. Yeah, you're right. Three blinding flashes of light. The boom of the cataclysm, as far as we know, was not accompanied by a big flash of light. Okay, fair enough. So we were talking about massive bombs. Well, the first one was the bomb, the second one was the capsule, and then just the gate opening. So three flashes of light. Three is a magic number. Right. Gotcha. That's the best that I got. Three sort of dramatic moments that introduce change. And that's true. Yeah, it's kind of like at each of those flashes of light, the story kind of makes a turn. There's like a 180 right. on the events of the chapter. And we talk about Ernest Klein really kind of baking in patterns into his works. I almost wonder if he's not sort of, um, if it's not a degree of manicness, almost like I have to have patterns, have to have patterns, have to bake in some patterns. Uh, three is a, a very common pattern for a lot of things. 
But the fact that we have sort of these three gargantuous story pivotal moments that are accentuated either with a flashing light or the sound of a, a giant explosion. Give it any other writer, I would say, eh, coincidental. He's got giant flash, giant boom on the brain. Given Ernest Klein, not surprising. Takes three keys, three pivotal moments accentuated by sort of the heralding of destruction, if you will, because that's what each one of these is, is the heralding of destruction that's pivotal to the story. Not surprising, and I would almost say either purposeful or unintentional, but habitual. Like I could see Ernest Klein saying, oh, well, I didn't really mean to put it that way, but, you know, but it would be habitual. Does it make sense? Yeah. Okay. No, I, I get you. So, yeah, that's a, that's a great thing to have caught. I like that. I don't know about you, but I feel like that kind of wraps up this chapter rather nicely. It ends with a bit of a boom, and I don't know how else to draw it out anymore. No, you're right. I think we've done it. It's a, it's a great fucking chapter. I always get excited when I read it, and when Ultraman makes his appearance, I always kind of, you know, give a little goofy grin. It's such a great chapter, and we've said it a thousand times. At this point, if you're not hooked, I'm, yeah. yeah, so great. It was a joy to have to read it or listen to it over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. You don't have to convince me to to do that. I will do it willingly. And yeah. there's still plenty of book left that I'm still very excited to get to, but by far the best chapter. Yeah. And for anybody that's listening, either get on Twitter, or get on Facebook, tell us where your head was when you reached the end of this chapter. Did you throw the book across the wall? Did you just keep going into the next chapter because you couldn't stop? But I mean, seriously, when, it, when the chapter ends with, and we all died, I want your thoughts on that. I want to know what happened yeah. in that moment and how you fucking dealt with that. Where was your head in that moment? Did your head explode like the cataclysm went off in your brain? Because, hmm? yeah. And that's kind of where I was. I can see how that would do that. All right, then. Let's wrap this up. Thank you for joining us in this episode. This is Chris. And this is Aaron. And we will catch you in the next chapter of Get to the Good Part. See you then. He says, uh, looks like you'll be whipping it with your left hand now, Sorrento. No, he says wiping. Are you sure you didn't mean like, you know, you sure that's not a masturbation reference? I'm pretty sure. You'll be whipping it with your left hand, playing the stranger. Wiping. Hold on a sec. Oh. Hmm. That does say wiping. Hmm. Whipping would have an H. Um... I think I would have enjoyed it if it said whipping better, but I guess, I guess we're past the chapter with masturbation, aren't we? Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Thanks be a crom. We are. Thanks. <laughs> All right. I'll be wiping with your left hand now. This is not nearly as interesting. But show- it's a poop joke. It is a poop. <sighs> it's a weak poop joke.